Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Lisa Peterson, who is the Associate Director at Berkeley Rep and the Director of Watch on the Rhine by Lillian Hellman, which opens at Berkeley Rep on December 4th, with previews beginning on November 30th. Lisa Peterson has won two Obie Awards and has directed several shows for Berkeley Rep, also for Cal Shakes and at the Guthrie. We'll be directing Office Hour later this season for Berkeley Rep. Lisa Peterson, what drew you to watch on the Rhine? I saw the film and I kept thinking, yeah, it's anti-fascist, but the film is very melodramatic and has a lot of difficult soliloquies, which probably wouldn't work in modern society. I guess the play is different? I hadn't seen the movie until partway through rehearsals at the Guthrie. I didn't want to have it infect my brain. This is a really vigorous play, great character studies. It could, in the wrong hands, slide into melodrama, which is what I think happened in the film. They did a lot of changing for the movie to give Betty Davis kind of a chunkier role. So I would say the movie is very different from the play. The movie also has music that kind of Darth Vader-ish themes that come up whenever the, quote, villain comes on stage. That's you right. notice that. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a reason why it's not a famous movie, even though Betty Davis stars in it. Reading this play was really a discovery because I had never been a huge Lillian Hellman fan, although I'd seen a couple of really interesting productions of Little Foxes in New York, one very abstract and the recent one that was fairly traditional with amazing actors in it. And I had been intrigued by that play, which is very autobiographical, but I had never really read Lillian Hellman. I read this play because Tony Tacconi asked me to. He got interested in it, I think, because Joe Hodge, who runs the Guthrie Theater, sent it to him. And because I think after the election, so many people in the American theater were looking back to say what was being written, what was being talked about in those years before the Second World War. What were people thinking in the early days when fascism was on the rise in Europe? Are there similar issues and concerns that we should be paying attention to now? And so I think that really started the whole drive to study this period in American history, which is 1940, the spring, before we have entered the Second World War, when in fact there was not very much press about what was happening with the National Socialists in Germany. You'd have to really go to page 7 or page 9 of the New York Times to read about the ways in which the Nazi party was expanding across Europe at the time. Did you do any research on Hellman's writing of the play itself? I did, yeah. And also just about her life in general. I read An Unfinished Woman, which is her first of three memoirs, and it's really great. I just love her voice. What was the origins of the play itself? She had visited Russia, and she had also done some traveling in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. 
So she was particularly attuned to the politics in Europe, and she had friends who were involved in the anti-fascist movement early on. And she felt that Americans in general were not paying enough attention. Really, she wrote this play as a kind of a wake-up call to the United States to encourage the citizens and the government to step up and take a stand against Hitler. One of the interesting aspects of the film is that the screenplay, which did win an Oscar, was by Dashiell Hammett. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was Dashiell Hammett. Then I realized Dashiell Hammett and Lillian Hellman. They were a couple. Yeah, I don't know too much about how the film was written. There is no evidence that Dashiell Hammett had anything to do with the writing of the play. I think what happened was Lillian Hellman wrote the play very quickly in the summer of 1939. Uh, she wrote it in her country house, which I think was in upstate Connecticut, fairly urgently. So as far as I know, when they decided to make a movie out of it, Betty Davis was involved. They hired Dashiell Hammett to write the screenplay based on Lillian Hellman's play. Well, one of the credits also says, screenplay by Dashiell Hammett with additional dialogue by Lillian Hellman. It was very peculiar. But they do credit it as based on her play. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. Absolutely. That means that Lillian Hellman, who was, I believe, quite an opinionated, spiky, no-nonsense, not-quiet person, probably kept saying, no, let's do this. I mean, they really moved a lot of speeches over to Betty Davis's character. Uh -huh. And so I'm sure they had pressure from the Hollywood producers and from Betty Davis to make changes, and I'm sure that Lillian Hellman fought them. She plays the thankless role of the wife, and she's not very good in it. And Paul Lucas, who was the star, and he's the anti-fascist from Europe, yep. won an Oscar and was actually much better than anyone else in the film. Yeah. He had played that part on Broadway, actually. A few of those actors were coming from the Broadway production of the play, including Paul Lucas. Coming at it from a completely new view, not having seen the movie at that point, yeah. uh, and then when you see the movie, did that offer any insight into what they were doing wrong and you might be doing right? Listen, it, when you're in the middle of working on something, you don't want to look at something and think, oh, they got it right and we're doing it wrong. You want to feel the other way around. So it was encouraging to me that this is a play, first and foremost. Listen, all plays don't make good movies. There's a lot more talking on stage than you'd want to have in a movie. You mentioned the speeches. There are a couple of extraordinary stage speeches in this play, but they don't necessarily make good movie copy. I encountered the play just as a play. I mean, I read it. I had never seen it. I hadn't seen the movie. And I was completely struck by the thriller, which surprised me. When I read the play, I did not know what was going to happen. I was surprised. And... I thought, it's a good thriller. It's a really good political thriller. And also, there's a lot of humor in the play that I don't think the movie captures. There's a lot of wit in it. The relationships in the play, it's an ensemble play, really, more than it is a star vehicle. It's about the entire company, including, by the way, two young people. There's an eight-year-old character and a 12-year-old character, and they have a lot to do. So it's a family play. <laughs> it ranges from eight to you know, whatever age Fanny the matriarch is, she's in her probably, maybe she's 70 years old. So there are all these generations, they're all very smart people. And they are, you know, put in this interesting situation. It's set outside of Washington, DC, this woman who's rich, progressive, 
widow of a very important lawyer. He might have even been a Supreme Court judge. It's never really spelled out. She is expecting home her daughter, who has been in Germany for 20 years. She's married a German man, and she's had three kids, and they have not been back. So that right there is a pretty dramatic situation. What, what would keep a woman away from her home for 20 years? And what's it going to be like when she comes home suddenly? And what's it going to be like for the grandmother to meet her grandchildren for the first time? And there are also these mystery guests who happen to be staying in the house at the same time. And they are a count and a countess. Young American woman has married a Romanian count. And they're sort of friends of friends, and they've been staying upstairs for too long. In the film, I kept going, who are they? It seems odd that they would be there. Yeah. Well, it is, except that the play makes it pretty clear that there is a family-friend connection, that they have overstayed their welcome, but that the hostess finds herself in a position where she can't ask them to go. So it's Washington society you know, middle of the 20th century. There is just a kind of noblesse oblige about you, you know, you've opened your home to people and then you can't get rid of them. But it is one of the mysteries of the play. It's true. And you have this Romanian count. In the film, he's a bit of a cartoon, but I don't think he's a cartoon. He's, he's an interesting guy. You can kind of detect that in the film characters played by George Kolaris, and it almost seems as if He's trying to avoid being a villain, but the lighting and the music mm. is making him a villain. Right. I would agree with that. I mean, everything that we did in rehearsal was to try to dimensionalize the characters and what's happening between them so that it did not slide into melodrama. I think we've succeeded. It was, um, it was really fun to be in the audience at the Guthrie because a lot of people came out of some curiosity about Lillian Hellman a title that they vaguely recalled, but a story that they didn't know. And I think people are really in the mood right now for smart, funny, political stories. And this is a very historical political story, but it's also full of witty conversation and complicated family dynamics. I mean, it's a realistic play. It's really not a melodrama. Yeah, we just tried to create as many layers as we could in the performances. Is it all one set? It is. It's the living room. It's the living room. I call it the project room because there's a talk about the house being quite huge, and there's even mention of there being a ballroom in that house. I don't think it's the only living space. It's certainly not where they eat or do anything else. But, you know, in the middle of this play, there's a moment where everyone's kind of working on their own projects. There's a card game going on. The eight-year-old is trying to fix a heating pad for the secretary. Someone's playing the piano. People are practicing uh, throwing a baseball around. So I call it the project room just because I grew up the daughter of an architect and a weaver, and we had a project room at home, and that's where everyone is busy on their own projects. One more question relating the film. There are scenes that take place in the German embassy card games. Uh, are those card games now in the house? or? In the play, the card game in the embassy is referred to, and it's talked about, but we, you don't see it. There's a card game in the house, but it's a different card game. It's just a kind of a friendly family card game. The card game that happens in the embassy is a very important plot point. It's in the German embassy, which means that, did you know that in 1940, if you went to the German embassy in Washington, D.C., 
it was flying the Nazi flag. Of course it was. And right. there are photographs that show that to you. During that era, of course, Hollywood sanitized religion. You didn't really see Jews, but not in a play. I mean, is, is there any ethnic makeup in the play that's different from the, uh, from the film? No. We have actually cast this production a little differently, though. We've cast a, a wonderful African-American actress as Anise, the secretary from France, thinking that there was no reason that she couldn't be sort of uh, maybe Algerian French. I have cast the butler role, which was written as an African-American character. I've cast him as an Irish-American character. So I flipped the racial dynamic of the household that way. And then I've cast an, a, a wonderful Egyptian-American actor as Kurt, the anti-fascist fighter. And that was just because I thought, in this day and age, how can we open this up more? I was thinking there's a lot of talk about refugees in the play because both sets of people from Europe refer to themselves as refugees. And I was really struck by the use of that word. And at the time when I was casting it, there was just a lot happening in terms of Syrian refugees trying to get themselves to Europe. Anyway, so I was just trying to break down the kind of the sort of traditional way of casting the story. Is there any other difference between, say, this production and the Guthrie? It is a co-production, so the plan was always that the same cast of adults would start at the Guthrie and come here to Berkeley, and that the set, in fact, gets put on a truck and brought here to Berkeley and has been designed to fit in both theaters. One difference is that the two youngest kids, the two, the eight-year-old and the 12-year-old character, will be played by local young actors instead of young actors in Minneapolis, because the kids in Minneapolis are in school <laughs> and they need to stay there. And also, it's just great to give a couple of local kids a, a chance to play these parts, which are really fun parts. Well, Lisa Peterson, I'd like to ask you about Office Hour, which is later in the season. What brought you to that particular play? Well, Julia Cho is somebody that I've known for quite a while. She's a fantastic playwright. And I met her in Los Angeles when we both lived there, golly, about 15 years ago. Um, she's a playwright who is able to write about very complicated contemporary issues, but with delicacy and from such a particular point of view that uh, her plays just are luminous. This play premiered actually down at South Coast Rep in Orange County, California. I did not direct that projection, but a friend of mine, Neil Keller, did. So I knew it was happening. I was doing a different play while they were doing that play, and I was really intrigued by it. And I also knew that it had been loosely inspired by the Virginia Tech shooting, and that Julia was, particularly as a Korean-American with the same last name as the shooter at Virginia Tech, she was kind of making a thought exercise for herself about what if... I encountered this young person. What would happen? What would I what would I say? How do I feel about the fact that somebody from my culture did this thing? What do I feel about guns in this country in general? So I was intrigued by it. And then Tony Tacconi had directed Aubergine, one of right. Julia's other plays here at Berkeley a couple years ago. And it was a it was a wonderful play, wonderful production, very successful here. And so he was curious about the play but busy himself doing other plays. So he said, would you be interested in directing this? And I read it, and I just loved it. So I feel lucky that I get to do it. What is the actual setup of the play? It's primarily about an associate 
professor of English in a university that could be anywhere in this country. In the first scene, she is warned by a couple of colleagues in the English department about a student who is writing incendiary, violent pieces in their classes. And he's completely uncommunicative as a person. And they're worried that he may fit the profile of a classic shooter, and they warn her about this. The body of the play is the encounter between the teacher and the student. It's actually fairly kaleidoscopic in its structure, so there is not only a single reality, I guess I'll say that. It's really about this professor who faces this student, and she has a certain amount of fear but also a certain amount of empathy for him. It's called Office Hour because it is primarily this hour in which the professor and the student face off. In working on a play like this, Lisa Peterson, comparing it to working on a play like Watch on the Rhine, how is the different approach given to a realistic play that takes place over time like Watch on the Rhine versus one that has a more scattershot kaleidoscopic effect? I guess the biggest difference is that Julia is around. <laughs> She's here. And so the beginning of the process for me, if the writer is alive, is to have conversation with the writer to, to get underneath the motivating drive toward writing the play, the style of the play, what they hope for the play. So I begin a partnership with the playwright. The different styles of the two plays, I wouldn't say that doesn't really affect the way that I go at understanding the play. It's just part of the process in terms of the design. I mean, with Julia's play, the room needs to do a number of different things. In the Lillian Hellman play, it is a real room. But we really wanted to focus on the fact that the Hellman play was a thriller. Actually, the room for Watch on the Rhine is tilted and raked, and there are subtle ways in which we've put it off kilter to sort of keep the audience on the edge of their seats a little bit more. And with the scenery for Julia's play, it's very simple because the play's complicated. So the play is complicated, therefore the set does not need to be. That brings up an interesting question, which is, as a director, when you're working on a set and you're working on a set within the context of the play, a lot of this stuff at our end has to be subliminal, but you have to understand how we're going to react. Yeah. Does, is that something you just learn over time? I guess it is. You just use your instincts and you put yourself in the position of the audience. So I have to kind of assume that I'm a good example of the audience we want to reach. And if something is compelling to me, I have to assume it will be compelling to an audience. And it's also about finding collaborators, sound designer, composer, lighting designer, set designer, costume designer, who have similar aesthetics. This is the thing I love about directing is the, is the combination of the team of artistic collaborators and how every play is completely different because the input from all those different creative minds combines to make something very special. Lisa Peterson, how did you begin in theater? As I said, I was the daughter of an architect and a weaver, so I grew up in what I remember as a fairly creative household. When I was five years old, I fell in love with theater. I got the bug. I saw a production of My Fair Lady, and I wanted to... I took my first acting class when I was five. We acted out fairy tales. So 
I am one of those, I consider myself lucky people who knew what I wanted to do all my life. I, I, I mean, I really was very young and I wanted to be making plays. I used to make my fellow, you know, classmates in nursery school and kindergarten, like act out Mary Poppins, you know, out on the recess during recess. And so, and of course I started out wanting to be a, an actor. I didn't know you could be a director. So up into college, I was in plays. I had a little theater company with my friends and I grew up in Aptos, California. Of course, we mostly did musicals and I went to Yale. I hung up my tap shoes and uh, started acting in serious plays. And also I had a professor, Bart Teusch, who looked at me and said, have you ever thought about directing? Why don't you take a directing class? And I did. And literally the first scene I ever brought into that class, which was from Wojciech, by the end of that class, I wanted to be a director. So I had like a revelation moment in college. Been lucky. And I also, you know, in the last 12 years started adapting and doing a little more writing, which is something I was always very interested in. But I always wanted to be in the theater. How did you get involved in The Waves, which was a musical in 1990-91? That was one of the first adaptations that I ever did out of college. It's an adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel, The Waves. And I think I was only a year out of college when I had an internship in, in Ithaca at the Hangar, Uh, theater there and got some friends together and did a cut and paste. That is a story about six friends. It's kind of like the big chill, except for smart people. (laughs) And it's just beautiful. It's about life. One of my friends who was in it, David Bucknam, said, I want to musicalize this. And so he wrote this incredible score and we did it at New York Theater Workshop in 1990. And it was my big break. I didn't win an OB for it. I won an OB for the next thing I did at New York Theater Workshop light shining in Buckinghamshire, but the waves was my calling card. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned it because a lot of people forgot about it. It was pre-digital age, so we don't have a recording of it and we can't even share it. But this past summer, a fantastic Broadway star named Raul Esparza and I have begun talking about reviving it. So we're in the process, since you ask, of recording it, of bringing it into the digital age, and we're going to do a little refresher on it, and we're going to try to find a way to do it in the next few years. How did you get involved with Dennis O'Hare working on an Iliad, and you're also working on something new with him, too? Yeah, we actually have two new plays that we're working on. Well, Dennis, I met him in Chicago in the late 80s. I directed him in a small play there, and we stayed friends. And in, uh, I guess it probably was 2005... I was thinking about the fact that we were a country at war. We'd invaded Iraq. I was thinking about war plays. And I had this idea that it might be fun to try to do an Iliad as a solo performance. And I thought I'd like to do it with not a writer, but with an actor who could write. And so I went to my friend Dennis, who's very political, and said, would you like to work you know, on this with me? And we did, just by ourselves, occasionally at New York Theater Workshop, you know, in a spare room. And we would read it out loud. And we ended up starting to record each other talking about it. And it turned into an Iliad, which we ended up doing finally. We did it at Seattle Rep. We did it at the McCarter. And then we did it at New York Theater Workshop. And then we brought it here to Berkeley Rep. And we've been touring it around the world. And 
a lot of other people have done it as well. It got published. And so it's, it's turned into a play that I'm really proud of. Dennis and I are working on a companion piece for a woman to perform about the rise and fall of Rome called The Song of Rome. And we also have a project that is about the Bible. It's not a solo. It's called The Good Book. And it is a play about the making of the Bible, the Christian Bible. What is the idea of order? That's another piece that I'm that I'm writing. It's uh, with Todd Almond, who's an amazing composer. It's a commission for Berkeley Rep, La Jolla Playhouse, and Seattle Rep. It's kind of a goofy, very unusual piece inspired by the poetry of Wallace Stevens. And it's about our desire for order in a world that really wants to pull us toward chaos. It's about our love of words and our fear of change. Do you find that as a woman director, there are issues or is the theater world on some level finally over that? Not over it yet, I would say. I think the numbers pretty much show you that it is still difficult for women to be in leadership positions in the American theater. And even it's tough for female playwrights to get their plays done unless they have a male nom de plume. <laughs> and when I was younger, I used to deny that there was a problem, primarily because I had my head down and I was fighting my way up. But now I have to admit that, you know, that, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to navigate because I think that in general, this country feels uncomfortable with women in leadership positions. That is changing. But it's changing slowly. At this very moment that we're talking, I think there's been a lot in the press about just how difficult it is, the power dynamic between men and women in all fields, but especially creative fields. It's not only in the movie business that it's a problem. Related to that, of course, is that right now TheaterWorks, ACT, and Berkeley Rep are all looking for new people. If they're all men, white, middle-aged men, that becomes a problem. I agree. Obviously, you can't talk too much about it because we're here at Berkeley Rep. Mm. But in a general sense, I mean, I think something's got to give. Yeah, I would agree. There are certainly plenty of dynamic, qualified women in the country who are, I'm sure, are, are going to be applying for these jobs. I mean, it's really all just about getting as many, as much varied perspective as you can in these leadership positions. You're right. I don't know what kind of crosstalk happens between the organizations, but I think each organization is responsible for thinking forward, for thinking into the future, for being really brave and bold about choosing people who will be able to bring new voices into the theater. Two quick questions. First, any interest in directing film? No. I love theater so much. I don't go to the movies that often. These days, I'm much more interested in television, to be honest with you. I mean, if you had asked me any interest in writing for television, I might say, hmm, yeah, I've thought about it. Because what I see right now is that it is actually in non-network and network television, that's where the really interesting things are being said and examined. I don't know about film. I just never fell in love with it. And it's a completely different art form. I respect it, but I, I have no desire to try to make a movie. And final question. Okay, you've got Office Hour, and now you're finishing up on uh, Watch on the Rhine. The day after it opens, in a way, is you can kind of take a back seat, right? For Watch on the Rhine or, yeah. or any show, yeah. Once a play opens, I hand it over to the stage manager and to the company, and they take care of it, really. So 
Yeah, then I'm done. I get on a bus and I'm out. After office hour, you have any uh, anything in the works as a director? My hope is that at after office hour, which opens here at Berkeley on March 1st, I'm going to focus on my writing projects for a little while. The Revival of the Waves, Pushing Idea of Order Forward, my two new plays with Dennis O'Hare. So most of the spring, I hope to be focusing on writing projects. I'm pretty sure we'll be touring in Iliad to possibly Romania, maybe Brazil. So we'll be doing a little bit of that. That's what I know so far. Watch on the Rhine by Lillian Hellman begins on December 4th with previews starting on November 30th. For more information, you can go to berkeleyrep.org.